Thank you for joining us for Working Through the Word, a ministry of the Richmond Church of Christ. Let's join our resident missionary, David Pear, as he brings today's lesson. Her name was Martha Vera Garrett Huggins, born 1908 and died in 2005 at the age of 97. I only knew her as a resident of the local nursing home. She was a first-generation Christian who embodied the influence of one person who, has, who, who can lead their entire family to Jesus Christ, which spanned generations. If my memory serves me correctly, she, she was converted early in life and then was responsible for her parents and siblings' uh, conversion. Later, she married a man who became an elder in the Lord's church until his death in 1959. Her four children were church leaders, two ministers, an elder, and the wife of an elder. Among her adult grandchildren were additional ministers, deacons, elders, Bible class teachers. At her funeral, her influence was seen to the fourth generation. Everyone in her family were not just Christians, but faithful Christians. It reminded me of what the Bible says in Revelation 14 and verse 13. And I heard a voice say from heaven, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Sister Huggins' works and deeds did indeed follow her. And she is remembered. When I tell my daughters, I don't want you just to marry a Christian. I want you to marry a faithful Christian. Because see, that's different. And it's sad that we have to qualify that in, in this way because there are different kinds of Christians. A Sunday morning only Christian. A backsliding Christian. An unfaithful Christian, a worldly Christian, whatever that means, but a faithful Christian who can teach their family in such a way to influence to the third and the fourth generation. Now the question for you and for me, what can be done to instill faithfulness and spiritual awareness in our families, is it, a matter of, is it a matter of chance? We just roll the dice? Or are there strategic steps that we can take to instill spiritual awareness and faithful living to the third and the fourth generation? My topic this morning is the importance of raising a spiritual family. Now, I must confess, I'm somewhat unqualified, I feel. I look out among this audience and I see so many of you who have raised faithful children. And it's like you should be telling me because my children are still at home. But... You have me for today. 
this morning. So let us consider a couple of points. In the first place, let us consider the importance of a spiritual environment. And I leave it general like that before we get into the family, although I want to focus primarily on the family, but I want to start by emphasizing the importance of a spiritual environment. What is, if any, importance of being around Christian folks, of being in the church, of being raised in a spiritual family? Well, I submit to you a couple of ideas that you have on the outline and we will briefly look at. For example, one, one thing about being in, an, in, a, in a spiritual environment is the luxury and the blessing of being in a faith-filled family. I recall, not personal experience of course, back in the days of Exodus chapter 12 when the Jewish family was sitting around the table having already painted the, the, the blood of the, of the animals on the, on the, uh, uh, the doorposts. And as the family is sitting around the table eating the, the Passover feast and hearing the death angels coming through the land of Egypt and the voice of those families crying in despair and pity and knowing that that family would be hit and that family would be affected and that family, but this family here filled with faith having already done what God has said to do to avoid the plague, the death of the firstborn. And they're sitting there saying, thank God Almighty, we are saved. God's angels have passed over this house. A faith-filled family. Don't you want to be in a spiritual environment? Add to that the joyous fellowship. As when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were told that their seed would outnumber the stars of the heaven and the sand on the, on the shore. Don't you want to have a family that when you get together, you don't have to talk about or disagree or, or well, what family doesn't have disagreement? Hang with me on this. Don't you want to be in a family where when you gather together, you, you don't have to worry about all the differences of the world and all the problems and carnality, of which we will talk about in a minute. But you can gather together as saints and have the joyous fellowship of being in a spiritual environment. You don't have to worry about offending someone because, well, they're don't understand the Bible like you. What about a safety net? Of all the darkness in the world, spiritually speaking, when you come into the spiritual environment, there's a safety net. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter was released from prison, he came to Dorcas' house. And there found safety from the world. Not only that, Psalm 68 verse 6 tells us about the support group that comes by being in a spiritual environment. And finally, Revelation 22, when we get to heaven, there is a heavenly home 
the city through the which there's the river of life and in the midst is the tree of life bearing its fruit all over again just like we saw in Genesis chapter 2. Being in a spiritual environment is so important because it offers differences from the world, blessings. Now let's bring it more into the family. I want to show you from the, from the Bible in the second place to consider examples of spiritual families. Some got it right and some didn't. All of these characters we are very familiar with. And you have the text. There's too many texts to, to look at in depth. But just to highlight some of the things that we observe. For example, there are some, exa- there are some people, some godly men in the Old Testament who when it, come, when it came to ministry got many things right. But when it came to home, they missed it. I think of Eli, one of the, the last judges. Samuel was the last, but Eli was the second last. A great man. But he missed it. And you can read the account of, of his sons and how, how debased they were. And then Samuel. Samuel's sons were maybe not much better. And it was well known, and that was one of the reasons why the Israelites demanded a king. Because Samuel was old, and his sons walked not in the ways of God. And then we think of David. Consider some of his sons, who were terrible examples. And even Solomon, who was a man of God, and gave himself to God in his early years, and prayed for wisdom. And God said, because you have not prayed for gold, or, 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 or uh, for wealth, or fame, or power, but you prayed for wisdom, I'm going to give you all of it. And yet, in 1 Kings chapter in 1 Kings chapter 11, in verse number 3 and 4, Solomon's wives, his women, turned his heart away from God. But aren't you glad the story doesn't, for Solomon doesn't end there? It was as the, Psalm, uh, the, the Proverbs writer said, Solomon said in Proverbs 22 and verse 6, Train up a child in the way that he should go. And that when he is old, he will not depart from it. Solomon departed, but he found his way back home. Consider some other examples in the Old Testament of men, godly men, who got it right. And by the way, by by way of observation, some of the men that I've already mentioned are found in Hebrews chapter 11. They were faith-filled They were in the hall of faith. But they didn't get their families. Consider Noah, a righteous man. A man who found grace in the eyes of God. The first time the word grace is found in the Bible. This refers to Noah. A man filled with grace. For a hundred years he preached righteousness Condemning the world. Now, isn't that interesting? The Hebrews writer says he condemned the world. Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. Put those two together, 
and you have a balanced view of preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness wherein he condemned worldliness. And for a hundred years, he got his family right beside him in building the ark, in getting on the ark. Now, no one's perfect. The old world followed into the new world. And we have Genesis 9, Noah and Ham. That's another story. But Noah got his family on the boat. A hundred years of preaching and ministry, he didn't get anyone else. But he got his family. He got something right, I would submit to you. How about Abraham? He was a friend of God. James called him God's friend. I would like to be called God's friend, wouldn't you? Abraham, God's friend. And why do I mention Abraham? Because he taught his family. Everywhere he went, he was building altars to God. And even in Genesis 22, the sacrifice, the, the, the time when God told him, take your son, your only son. Which son? The son you love. Oh, that son. Um, one more designation, even Isaac. Take Isaac and offer him. Abraham took his son, his only son, the one-of-a-kind son, and offered him on the hills of Moriah. And when I read that text in Genesis 22, I, I see a man and his boy going on a mission. And the father's not dragging his son. His son is right there with his father. And still, when he knows what's going to happen, he's asking his father for guidance. And his father is helping him, guiding him along and not giving in to fear. Interestingly, Abraham rose early in the morning. I've said plenty of times that if God told me to take my, my son, or anyone for that matter, I think I'd sleep in the next day. Abraham rose early in the morning. And the Hebrews writer says that figuratively, Abraham received Isaac back from the dead. Because Abraham knew what he was going to do. Abraham taught his family. Noah and Abraham are good examples, in my opinion, of people who raised, men who raised spiritual families that affected generations. I'm not just wanting to get my kids in the baptistry. We're after something different, something more. We're putting, as godly parents, we're putting something. And you too, we're putting something in our children that cannot be seen, that cannot be tasted, that cannot be smelt. And yes, I said smelt. More of that in a minute. In the third place, let's take another layer. And let's consider... Let's consider when spirituality meets carnality. And the reason why this is important is because this affects every one of us. And this is what makes living the Christian life difficult. It's simple. Here's what the Bible says. It's simple. But it's difficult. Because it means you've got to change your heart. 
It means you've got to put away certain things. And even in the parable of the sower, 75%, if we can boil it down to a percentage, which we can't, but if we were, 75% of, of people who obey the gospel do not bear fruit. That's the wayside, the rocky side, the soil, and the thorny soil. But only the good fruit, only the good soil bears the good seed, and the good soil bears the good fruit. How do we do that? Well, we have to address when spirituality meets carnality. One of my favorite examples to emphasize the importance of godly homes and godly marriages and godly relationships is to start with Omri and Ahab and Jezebel. People say, well, you don't come to church to, to, to meet your mate. Well, maybe not per se. We come to church. I don't even like saying it that way. But we come to church to worship because we are the church. But if we can't find our mate in the church, where are we going to find our mate? I tell young people, I tell my daughters, you date who you marry. And if you can visualize in your mind that person's not a good person to marry, then you know what? Don't date them. Don't cross that boundary. Put that as a guidepost and do not move it. Here's why. Here's your example. Omri's son, he was a very evil, Omri was a very evil king. His son Ahab, a great builder, but a terrible king. Ahab looked to the neighboring kingdom, the Phoenician city king, the Sidonian king, of, uh, his name was Ethbaal. And yes, in his name is the, is the deity, Baal. Ethbaal was the priest and king of, of Sidon. And his daughter was Jezebel. And he gave his daughter Jezebel to be the queen of Israel, to, to marry Ahab. And it was Jezebel who introduced Baal worship to the northern ten tribes of Israel. But, you know, evil people do evil deeds. It's one thing for a man that doesn't walk with God to marry a woman who does not walk with God. But we take the next, we, we just keep reading in the book of, the, of Kings, and, and we see that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, a good king, desired for his son, King Jehoram, to marry a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Athaliah was her name, and she is the very one who united the two houses. Ahab and Jehoshaphat made this military and political alliance between the north and the south. And now Jehoshaphat, a good king, and Ahab, an evil king, are now united in one front. And just as Jezebel introduced Baal worship to the northern ten tribes, Athaliah, her daughter, introduced Baal worship 
to the southern tribes. And brethren, this is the very fact that brought the Jewish people into Assyrian and, and Babylonian captivity. It, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't anything else. It, it wasn't dirty words or dirty deeds. It was idolatry. It was removing God as the spouse of the nation and going and seeking other deities. It was spiritual adultery. Idolatry. That's what led Israel and Judah into captivity. It was the greatest downfall. And this evil influence that started with Amri and Ahab and Jezebel and King Joram of, of, of Judah and Athaliah, his wife, their son, King Ahaziah, and it doesn't stop there. The next four kings of Judah were good kings, but they didn't totally remove idolatry. Consider Joash, a young man who had a mentor priest who guided him, but upon his death, then Joash turned away. His son, Amaziah. Now, King Amaziah, the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 25 and verse 2, he did everything that was right in the eyes of God, but not with a perfect heart. Now, that's interesting. What does that mean? You could do everything right, but for the wrong reason. And you've missed it. You can teach your children to do everything right, but miss it. Because of a heart issue. Amaziah's son, Uzziah, took the incense and he got leprosy until his death. His son, Jotham, was absent in the temple and absent at home. And then his son, Ahaz, was one of the worst kings of Judah that had ever been seen. You've got the verses in the outline Got the background there. From Amri, or really Ahab, to Ahaz. That's 140 years. 140 years of influence. Is it fair to pin it all on Ahab and Jezebel? Probably not. But brethren, they did something. They missed something. Something big. Can we even look to Jehoshaphat? What was he thinking? What was he thinking? I don't know. But the influence is seen. We can't end here without giving you some considerations, some how-tos, some, some application to this lesson so that you can sink your teeth and, and apply this lesson and benefit in a way that will help you to raise spiritual families. We know of Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he shall not depart from it. You know, that, I think that helps three people. Number one, it helps if you've already raised your children and maybe they've turned out well, maybe they haven't. You can have a peace of mind knowing that, that a proverb is not a, an absolute statement. It's not. It's a, it's a short, pithy statement that, that, that holds true but it's not always true. But it's a guideline. 
But if you're young, you have small kids, you have kids in the home, there are things that you can do to train your children so that they never forget home. Do you remember the prodigal son? He left home. But at a certain point in life, he remembered how good it was in his father's house. And he came home. God bless him for that. What did that father do that made life so wonderful in contrast to the world that the young prodigal decided to give up his prodigal ways? Well, I think Proverbs 22.6 is best understood at least in the Jewish mind, in the, in the Hebrew way of understanding, when the Jews read that verse, they understood what it meant. You got to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. It's the Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. And hearing doesn't just mean to hear the words or hear mumbling. Parents, grandparents, have you ever told a child, hey, I need you to do this? And five minutes later, they're not doing it. And you say, hey, did you hear me? Well, yeah, but I heard you say something. Uh, that may be, in the English mind, that's hearing, but not listening. All right? And then you might have hearing, which means listening, but maybe not doing. Yeah, I heard you. You said this and this and this and this. Have you done it? No. The Hebrew word shema is to hear, listen, and obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You thought that was New Testament. There's a reason why Jesus said the greatest command of all is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your might. In other words, Love God down to the core with everything. Nothing takes place of your love for the Lord. And then Moses says, and you should teach this love. You should teach this principle to your children. When they rise up, when they lay down, when they walk by the way, it shall be on the lentils, the doorpost, just like you know, the Passover. Remember that? Consistently focus on the heart. We're not just after kids doing things right or doing right things. We're interested in kids doing right things in the right ways for the right reason. From birth... We've taught our children, do what's right all the time, no matter what, and leave the rest to God. Plug them into ministries, programs, events. You heard the stats, some of the stats from the Lads to Leaders program. If a child has one faithful parent or, or no faithful parents... The percentage is very low. They have two faithful parents in the home. That goes up quite a bit. If those parents are active and the family is active, 
then they have 80, 85, 90% chance of remaining faithful. I'm not trying to boil things down to stats. You know, the thing about statistics, they're great for giving an idea of a whole group of people, but they don't do anything about an individual. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's going to happen to you if this happens? It's not good at individual, uh, tracking individuals. I'm here to tell you, I know several families whose parents are both faithful to the Lord. And they plug into ministry, the lads program and others. And they're still missing it. Something is not right at home. So just because we say plug them into ministries, get them to church, get them to events, plug them into the youth. That's not the answer. These are methods of what you can do to help train your children. Find and create teachable moments. What does this mean? You know, for the Jews sitting at the Passover table in Exodus chapter 12, there's one little uh, snippet of information that Moses said. When you shall observe this statute for all generations, and when your children ask, what is the purpose of this Passover? Have you ever had children ask? Why do we do this? Dad, why is it? What is this made of? Why do we go here? And why do we do that? Seems like about third or fourth grade. You can just take a piece of paper and, and don't even write the question down. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> was a director at a camp in, in Alabama. And, I, and I th we, as camp leaders, we thought, we're going to do this. We're going to get a piece of paper and we're going to write down all the questions. You don't have to do this. Just, just make a mark on a paper whenever, whenever the third and fourth graders ask a question. Oh, there's another one. 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 Man, they'll come up with questions you never thought of. What a teachable moment. Why do we do this? Well, you know, there was a time when our people were in Egypt. And we're, we were being persecuted. And we cried to heaven. And, and God heard our prayers. And we had to kill a family animal. And put the blood on the doorpost. And we sat on the table and listened to the cries of, of the Egyptian families. Because they didn't do what God said. We observe this to remember. When the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, they set up 12 huge stones. Why? Because someday, children, Jewish families would come and see these stones, and the children would say, what is the meaning of these stones? Well, our people came out of Egypt, and they crossed the Jordan River, and God brought us through 40 years of wandering where everybody died save Caleb and Joshua and the Levites. And these stones represent what God has done for us. This next little thing, I didn't really know where to put this in the, in the lesson, but it's so important for our modern times that I can't leave it out. And this is the best place to say it. When you talk to people out in the world... Maybe even our brethren. When you talk about spiritual families, the idea of spiritual, you may ask people, are you spiritual? Oh, yeah, I'm spiritual. You go to church? No, I don't. 
Because in, in the mind of people today, to be, you could be spiritual without being religious. Okay, maybe in our English vernacular we have parsed the meanings differently and we understand. We can, we can say, well, you can be spiritual and, and heartfelt but not, you know, observer, you know, plug in. Uh, in the Bible there's no different. I think what people mean is, yeah, I'm, I'm, a better word would be superstitious. In Acts 17, Paul walked down the, the market streets in Athens and he saw all kinds of uh, deities that the Athenians neither knew nor understood. He said, yeah, these people are religious. They're spiritual. They're superstitious. Can you be spiritual and not religious? Consider James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I'll leave it to you. Can you be spiritual and not religious? I don't think so. These things are meant to help you. And as I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three at myself. These things are meant to help me to raise a spiritual family. And I hope they help you. Because I think all of us want spiritual families. And the biblical record helps us to picture that in our mind, to understand what that looks like. And we know it's tough. Some got it right. Many don't. And God grants us the time and the patience and time home, years at home with our children to get it right. We mess up, but we make it right. And we get up and we move on. If I live to see my great-grandchildren... I will want to see, I will want to have seen them having made the decision to become a faithful Christian. To decide, or to have decided, to put the Lord on in baptism. This is the most important. This is the most important part of the lesson. This is the most important thing of this world. Nothing else matters. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how many letters you have after your name. I don't care how good you are at your job. Nothing else matters than to raise a spiritual family. And I pray that all of us can be persistent in our consistency in getting it right so that we can all go to heaven 
together. Coming back to the family, it is a small picture of what heaven is like when it's done right. In a minute, the elders are going to come up. We're going to stand and encourage in just a minute. But when I think of our elders, our shepherds, I look at them, I look at their children, look at their grandchildren, look at our ministers, consider their children, consider their grandchildren. (laughs) Can you understand why I feel the least qualified to do this lesson? They got it right. They're doing it right. God bless them for setting the example, setting the bar, and others just like them among you here who give us, who are in the trenches with family, with children at home, a real life example of what to do. If you have no gospel, now's the time. Now is the time to set the record straight, set the example straight, get on the right path and begin. Start now. Start wherever you are. I'm so glad God takes you where you are currently and then leads you to where you need to be. If you're ready to start that journey, then come. While together we stand and encourage you, come down, the shepherds will meet you. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast brought to you by the Richmond Church of Christ. We are located at 1500 Lancaster Road in Richmond, Kentucky. We meet on Sunday mornings for Bible class at 9 a.m., followed by our morning worship service held at 10 a.m. Our Sunday evening service is held at 6 p.m., and our midweek Bible study is held on Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you are in the area, we would love to have you as our honored guest. Thanks for listening.